0: Good evening everyone. I'd like to welcome you to BIA Lay Sangha. Tonight we have special guest Aya Santusika who's just come from San Francisco a few hours ago off the plane. <laughs> it's kind enough to, to come and give teachings here at BIA. We may have a few more people coming in as The weather and traffic is uh, always a bit challenging in Bangkok, but we'll have an evening program of guided meditation, walking meditation, lecture, and questions and answers. So Aya Santusika has been training in her spiritual life from at least 1999 and has trained mostly in the Ajahn Chah tradition and has been trained with with other nuns in England and in America and now lives in Compassion Monastery, also known as Karuna Buddhist Vihara. And so she received bhikkhuni ordination last year and so without any more discussion on my part I'd like to let i uh, give the teaching now thank you
1: well it's very nice to be here and to see all of you i feel um honored and grateful to be able to come and share the dhamma it's not quite right. It's more like a joy. A joy to be able to talk about Dhamma. And also share some time together for meditation. So I would invite you to settle into your meditation posture. Whatever Helps you sit comfortably and straight, straight spine. So I'll be guiding this meditation and primarily basing it on the Buddha's instructions for Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing. So as we become balanced in our posture, sitting in a way that we don't have to work to hold ourselves up straight, but instead we're balanced. This helps to bring balance to the mind as well. if you're sitting on a chair it's useful to have feet flat on the floor and spine straight eyes closed at least that's the the way i find most beneficial myself and then take in a a, a deep breath and Exhale, long and slow. And do that again and again. The Buddha recommended that we stay present with our breath. That when we're breathing in, we know that we're breathing in. And when we're breathing out, we know that we're breathing out. just this much begins to bring our attention to a focus, begins to relax us, to help us settle the more carefully we stay focused on each in-breath and each out-breath, the deeper our concentration can go. So we breathe in and we notice if this is a long in-breath, or a short in-breath. And as we breathe out, noticing if it's long or short. And we can adjust the breath to make it more comfortable taking a real interest in the in-breath and the out-breath. If the body wants to breathe in deep, let it just stay present. If the breath becomes really shallow, soft, and faint, that's fine too. Just be present with it. And as we're breathing in, and we're aware that we're breathing in, we can also be aware of the entire body. And as we're breathing out, aware that you're breathing out, bring your attention, your sensitivity to the entire body, You might imagine as you breathe in that the breath comes in through the nose and spreads into the lungs and then throughout the whole body to the very edges, the tips of your fingers and toes, very edges or even beyond the physical body. And as you exhale, aware that this is an out-breath. Imagining the breath receding from the very outer edges, coming back through the core of your body and out again. Present with each in-breath, with each out-breath, and the entire body. as we breathe in, aware that we're breathing in, can allow the entire body to become calm. The breathing and every aspect of the body becoming calm. And as we're breathing out, We're aware that we're breathing out and inviting the entire body, every aspect, to become calm. And as we're breathing in, aware that we're breathing in, and be sensitive to feeling in the body, particularly feeling that indicates pity arising, maybe a soft tingling in the hands, sense of fullness. a kind of pleasure in the body. Showing that there is some deepening in our focus. And as we're breathing out, aware that we're breathing out, sensitive to any Feelings of pleasure, PT arising. as we're breathing in, aware that we're breathing in, and sensitive to whatever feeling in the body of calming, deepening, pleasant feeling, inviting that to spread in the body. And as we're breathing out, aware that we're breathing out, inviting feelings of calming, pleasant, soothing, joyful, feeling to spread in the body. As we're breathing in, aware that we're breathing in, we can notice whatever thoughts might be passing through the mind, whatever mental activity is there, just aware, as we're aware that this is an in-breath. As we're aware that this is an out-breath, noticing the activity in the mind, allowing it to be, passing through, staying present with the breath. And as we're breathing in, aware that we're breathing in, invite a calming to come to the thoughts in the mind, letting them fade into the background. Paying close attention to the breath. And as we're breathing out, aware that we're breathing out, calming the activity in the mind. as we're breathing in, aware that we're breathing in, can be sensitive to notice the mood of the mind. What kind of mind is this right now? Is it a contracted mind, a distracted mind, a peaceful mind, a happy mind? What is the general mood of the mind, the mind itself? And as we're breathing out, aware that we're breathing out and sensitive to the state of the mind, And as we're breathing in, aware that we're breathing in, bring into the mind something that makes it happy, gladdening the mind, maybe an image, what we have faith in, what lifts up the mind brightens the mind, encourages the mind. And as we're breathing out, aware that we're breathing out, encouraging and gladdening the mind, making the mind happy, making the mind peaceful, present with each in-breath, with each out-breath, in a way that's kind, in a way that's caring, in a way that's clear. Breathing in, aware that we're breathing in, and concentrating the mind. Inviting the mind to focus on one point. Whatever that may be. Perhaps between the eyebrows perhaps the tip of the nose, perhaps the energy center in the belly, staying present with the in-breath, present with the out-breath, concentrating the mind, really bringing some energy and focus to concentrating the mind. Bring the mind back to that point of focus, if it ever wanders away, gently, firmly, concentrating the mind, aware of each in-breath, aware of each out-breath. each in-breath, aware that you're breathing in, release the mind, relax, let go. And as you're breathing out, aware that you're breathing out and releasing the mind. Now, as we prepare to draw this meditation to a close, bring to mind something that you're grateful for. Bring to mind someone you'd like to share the merit of this practice with. Still maintain enough of that centeredness. We're going to stretch our legs a little and walk in meditation. If you've been here before, you've probably participated in this before. So we'll just line up can just follow David, and we'll do some walking meditation, just moving in a circle around the room. There you go. It's okay. If your legs are asleep, just give them time. (laughs) It's better to not fall on the floor. just stand for a moment. Just stand for a moment and we can just move the toes. Allowing the, the body to wake up a little bit. Bend the knees a little bit. Flexing them, being aware of the feeling in the body. And then we step out, aware of the feeling of the feet touching the floor, aware of our breath, We allow about a meter of space between the person in front of us. And just continue staying in tune, moving slower or faster, maintaining that space. If the person in front of you stops, then stop. If the person in front of you moves faster, move faster. If the mind wants to wander away, bring it back to the steps and the breath. And if it needs more of an anchor, count. Or use your favorite word or phrase that uplifts the mind. Mindfully return to your seats. Before we go into the Dhamma talk, I'd like to know if you have any questions about the meditation or any comments. I think there's a microphone sitting next to you, Sue. Maybe if someone wants to speak, we could give you the microphone. It's also possible that after all that you may not want to speak. That's okay too. <laughs> yes. Thank you for asking that. Um, could you hear her? Yeah. Okay. So recently, Ajahn Suchito. And he's a uh, abbot of Chidhurst Monastery in England. He was giving instruction in meditation, and he said it, it doesn't really matter what you do with your eyes or your hands or your feet, your legs. So my philosophy is do what helps you focus and be calm and alert. So if we are feeling, a, feeling sleepy uh, we're fighting that off, then it might be good to open the eyes. And the Buddha gave a list of things that we can try to do pull on our earlobes, look up. Um, there are various things we can do to try to bring energy into the body. Basically there's no you know like right answer. you just do this thing all the time. We have to be aware of what our body and mind are doing. And then adjust accordingly. Do what it takes to be concentrated and clear, calm, balanced, basically evaluating what is the result of what I'm doing, what is the state of things. You know, impermanence really affects everything. We're not going to come to our meditation in the same way twice (laughs) it's going to be different so my suggestion is that if it's helpful to have your eyes open then open your eyes if it's helpful to sit with your eyes closed because there's a lot of activity in the mind or distraction if you can go deeper then close your eyes I think um, I really hear what you're saying about developing awareness and mindfulness that you can use throughout your day and throughout activities so I used to when I when I drove a car before I became a seminary, um that's one way I uh, the driving ends <laughs> in this tradition I would drive I would Sometimes, in the right conditions, meditate while driving. Of course, the eyes are open. <laughs> Sometimes people ask me when they're walking meditation if they should close their eyes. No, <laughs> no, no. I have to have it open. I have to have the eyes open. But there's still meditation happening because it's a, it, there's a way of being aware, especially my experience is being aware of each in-breath and each out-breath. Uh, driving on the freeway in California, aware of each in-breath and each out-breath is actually safer than the mental chatter that goes on if I'm not focused. So I I just would, would encourage everyone to consider how you can meditate during every activity of your day. The Buddha said we can meditate standing, walking, sitting, or lying down. And so we can actually meditate doing just about anything. I find it's hardest when I'm speaking to actually be that present and concentrated. But when I'm listening, you can meditate and hear, deeply hear what someone is saying. And at the end, walking away, you feel like you've just had a deep session of concentration meditation. I hope that's helpful. Any other questions about meditation or the particular style we used tonight or anything else before I start talking about Nibbana? <laughs> Can you hear me okay now? When I get into meditation, I just get softer and softer. <laughs> it's harder to hear. Okay. So, I think the title of the talk tonight is, is about practicing in our daily life for Nibbana. And I'm sure you all have, you're probably all well aware of what that means, what Nibbana means. You know, there are so many different words and expressions that the Buddha used. You know, the highest happiness... peace, stillness, safety, refuge, the end, the end of suffering and stress. Of course, I don't think we can fully understand what it means until we realize it, but that's okay. He's given us a pretty good picture of what we're aiming for. What we're practicing for. And I think one of the one of the first important questions for any of us is, is that what we really want? There was a point in my practice when I had to admit, and this was quite a long time ago now, that I really I really wasn't so sure that I wanted to realize Nibbana. I still wanted to um uh, be thrilled by life. I wasn't so sure that, um, that I understood well enough what nibbana would be. I wasn't, I wasn't so sure. So one of the things that I think is so essential in our practice, in our development, is that we are really, really honest with ourselves about where we are. And if, if we have these reservations about striving, the Buddha said striving, ardent and resolute, then we should examine them and look into the teachings that the Buddha gave about, as he put it, the ultimate goal and see where it, holds us back. So the question then, another good question, I think, is do we feel like we can do it? Is it possible for us in this lifetime? And the Buddha said, if it wasn't possible, I wouldn't tell you to do it. I find that really encouraging. And Ajahn Panyawato, I don't know if you know who that is. is—is a British monk who lived with Ajahn Mahabua for about 40 years. Really wonderful monk. And, and he said, don't ever think that nibbana is far away. It's right here, right here. Sometimes we can get into the idea that, oh, my practice is so slow, and I have all these problems, and there's going to be a long time before I have such a realization, but you don't know that. It can happen any moment, any moment, and the practice is gradual. So as we're practicing in our daily life for the realization of Nibbana, for the Ultimate complete peace and stillness and happiness, the highest happiness. It's not as if life just goes along the same way all the time and then suddenly poof, it's all different. It's a gradual training and it's a gradual development. And as we develop, our lives get better and better. Better and there's more and more happiness and more and more calm and more and more peace. So it's wonderful. You can't go wrong. (laughs) You know, either either our lives keep getting better and and happier. That doesn't mean things don't happen. I mean, everything that life can bring, loss, change that we'd rather not have, sometimes disappointment, pain. But those things were going to happen because those are inherent in life. But what changes is our ability to be present with and able to, to work with whatever is coming in in a way that we can be happy. And we don't create so much trouble for ourselves. We don't create so much chaos in our lives. So how does that work? So how do we do this on a day-to-day basis, on a moment-by-moment basis of practicing? One of the suttas in the Pali Canon that I really find deeply valuable, there are many, of course, so the Buddha found so many ways to talk about Dhamma and how to live it. But this one is in the middle length discourses. It's the eighth one in there. It's called the Saleka Sutta. Saleka. And in this sutta, the Buddha talks about 44 things, defilements, to avoid. And he gives this whole formula about how we can work with these tendencies and become free of them, and in it become free, fully free. So he starts out by saying, others will be cruel, but we will not be cruel here. And every time I read that, there's this feeling in me that's like a, a sigh of relief. Others will be cruel, but we will not be cruel here. Others will kill living beings, but we will not kill living beings here. Others will speak falsely, but we will not speak falsely here. And I'm just picking a few of them out. Others will be resentful, but we will not be resentful here. He goes through 44 things like that. And in that... If we are really honest, we can find things that we find in ourselves. Oh, that's resentment. Oh, that's ill will. Huh, okay. Now, if I notice a tendency in myself and I can see, oh, that's what that is, then I can start to work with it. Buddha gives this whole formula of how to work with it which I'll come to. But this kind of investigation is so valuable. And it, it kind of gets behind and underneath this idea of I'm this way, or I'm this far along in my practice. I mean, that's a trap we can fall into. You know, I've been practicing for years, therefore I should be beyond resentment. Well, maybe I'm not beyond resentment. If I act like I am, if I try to it's a it's a self delusion. And by the way, everybody else can tell if we're not beyond <laughs> resentment. You know. So we don't wanna we don't wanna delude ourselves. We wanna actually know what is going on in my own mind, in my own heart. And and that shows itself in our actions, in our words. So it's extremely valuable to really investigate, okay, what... And, the, and the, the main sign that there's something there to work with is suffering. If we're uncomfortable, if there's stress, if we're unhappy in any way, we want to push something away, we want to grasp at something, then there's suffering, discontent. As soon as we become aware of that, then we can look at what the nature of this particular discontent or suffering dukkha, what is the nature of this particular instance of dukkha. Then the Buddha, in that sutta, he talks about inclining the mind towards the opposite quality. Instead of being resentful, we're not resentful. Instead of being cruel, we cultivate non-cruelty. Well, that seems pretty simplistic in a way, you know? What, what does that do? How does that, what does that lead to? And it's amazing to me when we really allow ourselves to focus on, how do I do that? okay, there was a thought of cruelty in the mind. How do I cultivate non-cruelty, and what is the result? And just that much. What's non-cruelty? Kindness. Bringing kindness into the mind regarding whatever being I'm considering here how does that affect this tendency towards this thought of cruelty? And the Buddha said that we incline our mind towards non-cruelty and then we avoid cruelty by practicing non-cruelty. And just that starts to change a pattern in us. And then he completes this whole instruction by saying that this wears away that tendency towards cruelty or any of these other 43 things. Some of them are really strong things, anger, say, and some of them are very subtle. And we have to work with all of that, whatever kind of way the defilements present themselves. And he, he rounds this out and ends it by saying, it's through this continual meeting of the cruelty in our own mind, in our own citta, and that we wear away that tendency. We keep meeting it. We keep becoming exposed to it. We come in contact with it again and again. There's another sutta where he talks about how we become, come in contact with this Tendency again and again, this kama, this old kama, again and again, and that's how it wears away. That's how the kama, that's the kama that puts an end to kama. That leads us to happiness, more and more happiness and nibbana. A lot of the things that we do, defilements that keep appearing in our own. Thoughts and words and behaviors, our actions, our habits. Habits are the things that we do almost automatically, right? Or we do automatically. Now, the scientists nowadays they can they can watch the centers of the brain that are active. You know, they put these little hairline wires hair hair. Um, like thickness, they're really fine wires that wire up the parts of the brain, rats, and they watch them run a maze. And they can learn about habits. So what happens when the rat goes into a new maze? The little door opens, click, and the rat comes out and sniffing everywhere and scratching everywhere because he doesn't know where to find the reward, but eventually finds the chocolate. Ah, I got it. Then he, the next time, and the next time, and the next time, there's less sniffing, there's less scratching, there's less looking around, and then there's more and more just going straight to where the chocolate is. So what they see in the brain is that in the beginning, there's lots and lots of brain activity for the sniffing and the, and the scratching. And, the, and then there's, there's brain activity for learning, oh, I have to go down to turn left, remembering where to go. But it's not very long, a few days, a week of running this maze. All of that calms down. The only brain activity is is in the basal ganglia. It's a little bundle of tissue in the brain stem. It's all going down to a low level. All those higher functions in the brain go silent. Not even the memory part is stimulated anymore. The only stimulation happens right at the beginning when the door goes click and right at the end when you get the chocolate. There's a spike. We have the same thing. So many of our activities become habit. If you drive a car, if you back your car out of the the driveway, Well, I don't know how, I rode in a car today in Bangkok. I don't know how much habit you can have in Bangkok. (laughs) Scary. You have to be constantly changing. But there are some activities in driving. Let's say you're going to drive back out of your own driveway or garage or whatever carport place where you park. You just automatically take your keys out, put them in the door lock open the door, get in, adjust the seat, adjust the mirrors maybe, you know, put the key in the ignition, turn it, put the foot on the gas, you know, so many small activities. When you first learn how to drive, you have to think about each one. Remember how intensive that is? It's true for anything, whether you're playing the piano, playing golf, whatever activities we do, as we learn them, We start to create habits. The details sink into the lower levels of the brain, and we don't have to put so much energy into each thing. Okay, this is good for human behavior. Otherwise, we would just be totally focused on getting food into our mouths because we wouldn't be able to just automatically move the the utensils, right? However, we also have habits that lead us away from Nibbana, anger anger can be a habit and anger can be a way of avoiding how we really feel because usually what's underneath anger is something like sadness feeling hurt feeling scared and we don't want that or maybe it's a habit we learned long time ago from our parents I found myself doing things that I saw my parents do. It wasn't even my habit. It was their habit. But we learn it at such a young age that we automatically follow. It's like it gets embedded in there. And then who knows what habits we brought from the previous lifetimes. But they're there in us. So how do you know if it's a habit that's leading towards nibbana or if it's a habit that's leading away from nibbana? Well the Buddha said we have to we have to develop that wisdom of knowing if something's wholesome or unwholesome. And the key question is is this leading to my long-term well-being and happiness or the well-being and happiness of others or is it leading to long-term harm suffering for myself or others? He taught his son Rahula when he was only seven, you have to look at every thought, Rahula, every action, every everything you say, and ask that question. Is this, is this for well-being? Is this for someone's benefit, your own benefit, or is it causing harm in some way? You think about it before you do it, before you say it. If it's causing harm, if it's going to cause harm, you stop. You don't do it. Don't say it. When you're saying it or doing it, you think about it or thinking it. Is this for harm or is this but for benefit for myself and others? If it's for harm, stop. Don't, don't continue. After you've done something, after you've said something, after you've thought something, he said, Rahula, think about it. Did that create harm and suffering? for anyone, for myself, for anyone else. If it did, then do what you need to do to make up for that and resolve to not do that again. Seems pretty simple. And yet we continually come back to the same behaviors that really create harm, maybe without even thinking about it. So we want to try as much as we can to really make that conscious. Now, the good news about habits is that we can make them conscious. And any habit that we make conscious, we can change. So back again to this fundamental reality that it is possible to change. It is possible to really move in the direction of Nibbana. Make that our clear intention. So The Buddha's most simple teaching about this is avoid evil, avoid what brings harm and suffering, do what's good, and purify the mind. So as we work with our mind this way, it's going to become more and more pure. And our behaviors become more and more pure. And we become happier. We create less trouble for ourselves and others. And we have to be willing to look at a really subtle level. Something like um, it was someone someone in one of my classes. We were it was a meditation class, and I was leading a meditation very similar to what I did this evening. And that evening I was focusing in particular on the the four instructions around the chitta. So the Anapanasati meditation has 16 parts the way the Buddha taught it. It's the most detailed instruction on meditation that the Buddha ever gave. And you can find the um, instructions in the middle-length discourses, in the long discourses, and also all of the things the Buddha said about the benefits of doing mindfulness of breathing but in the in those four you focus on the chitta you focus on the mind and so that instruction you know what is the what is the sort of mood of the mind you're looking at the container not the stuff that's passing through it but the container as if you're thinking about this room not all the people and the words and everything that come and go but what's the kind of mood What's the nature of this mind now? Is it contracted? Is it distracted? The Buddha gave a list of mental states and encouraged us to be able to discern our mental states. Is it peaceful? Is it happy? Is it unhappy? Is it deluded? Is it clear? So after the meditation, she said, what she saw was that she, in her mind she has this kind of backdrop of concern ongoing concern that's there all the time it's this kind of underlying discomfort that is concern and i said you can change that and she said what change my nature Is that your nature? She's saying that because as long as she can remember, that concern has been there. That background worry. But that's not her nature. The Buddha said that the nature is that the mind is bright and clear. And defilements come into it, to kind of mess things up. But they're adventitious, almost, by accident. You kind of pick them up. So we pick up these habits that we have, greed, hatred, and delusion, and all their various faces, and they become habitual. So that habit of concern... She can change that. Once you make it conscious, you can change it. So how do you do it? Well, habits have a structure. There's something that triggers the activity of a habit. Let's say we have a habit to eat candy. There's a certain something that happens that makes us go for the candy. You know, maybe it's... 3 o'clock in the afternoon and that's my indication that it's time to have some little sugar rush or maybe it's just the feeling of low blood sugar or maybe it's a reward that I give myself. So that's a simple one, right? But what's the behavior? The behavior is eating the candy. So first there's a trigger. There's something that triggers the behavior. If it's anger, say, we can look at what is it that's happening just before that anger arises. Or maybe it's not even just before, even the day before. You have to really be in, investigate sometimes to know what is it that's triggering this behavior. But there's always something. Or the rat in the maze, the door goes click. That activity in the mind, ah, oh, time to go out there and get the chocolate. Okay, so there's always some trigger. And then there's the behavior itself. And that's usually the easiest one to identify. And that behavior, in the, in the case that what we're talking about, is we try, is we work to change the way we think the way we speak and the way we act so that we're moving towards Nibbana. Everything we do takes us towards Nibbana or away. We don't want to go away. We want to go towards, of course. So what's that behavior? And then there's always a reward we do this thing habitually because there's some kind of reward. We're getting something out of it. And then if we can identify what that is, we can use that knowledge to change the habit. What's the reward for being angry? Well, one, one possibility. and It's not easy. It's not like it's the same answer every time. We have to really investigate know what my pattern is of becoming angry or resentful or whatever other activity it is. what is what is the reward what's the thing I'm getting out of that? Well, maybe it's that avoidance of having to feel a painful feeling of hurt or fear. Maybe it's something that was learned by watching a parent or watching someone else and maybe there's a comfort in repeating that same that same behavior. There's something that we get out of it. And we can investigate to find out what it is. If it's eating sugar, let's say I just use that example because it's it's easier to get hold of these kind of concrete things. Eating sugar, drinking alcohol, smoking, you know, um, All kinds of different habits. Being restless and not being able to go to sleep at night. That can be a habit. We can figure out why we're doing that. So let's say it's just sugar. I can I can figure out when do I when do I want the sugar? Okay. What do I do if I want to stop eating the sugar? Well, one thing I can do is practice renunciation. I can just decide, okay, for today or for this week or whatever period of time I want to choose that I feel like I can manage, I'm not going to have sugar. Then the craving comes. By the way, craving is another component of a habit. We have the three, the trigger, the behavior, and the reward. And then craving comes in when the habit becomes ingrained enough that when the little door opens, click, the rat, the activity in the brain is not just about the door opening, but it's also the activity stimulating the area of the brain that says, I've got the reward. They found this out with monkeys. That They would teach monkeys to operate a computer. I know, so just simple. <laughs> you know, They see a certain shape on the screen, if they hit the button, they would get some um, drops of juice. So the monkeys would learn pretty fast. Okay, when that triangle comes on the, sh- on the screen, then I, I hit the lever and I get the juice. If it's a circle, I don't get any juice. So I don't hit the lever. Okay, so they, they learn. And then as they're watching the activity in the brain... As soon as the shape, the triangle would come on the screen, before the lever, before the juice, the activity in the brain said, I've got the reward. That habit has become ingrained. So they thought, okay, what happens if we don't give the reward? A monkey's expecting the reward. What happens if we don't give it? The monkey would get angry. Or the monkey would get depressed because they're already expecting the reward. So the, the feeling, the thought in the mind, the activity in the brain was, I've got it, but then I didn't get it. We go through the same things. That's where craving comes in. So we have, that's what we're up against. Craving's a pretty strong tendency. The monkeys that the habit was, was already laid in like that, even if the researchers, they'd put food over on the, in the corner. They'd open the door so the monkeys could go out and play if they wanted to. And the monkeys that didn't have the habit, like they didn't have the craving appear when they saw the triangle, they'd get down and they'd go eat and they'd run outside and play. But the ones that had that, where they were already expecting the reward when they saw the shape, they wouldn't even leave. They'd just keep hitting the hitting the lever, trying to get the reward. The people who did the research said it, it looked like, you know, someone at a slot machine in Las Vegas after they've lost all their money, you know, they're still going for it. That's how caught up we can get in delusion, and craving. But we can change it. We don't have to follow these urges. And renunciation is such a wonderful tool because we can be present with that feeling of craving. We can be present with that discomfort, and we can mindfully be aware. Okay, there's that feeling. Here it comes. Okay, wow, it's really strong now, but I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to be mindful and present. I'm going to be aware. And then, you know, it gets to a peak and then it tails off and it starts to go away. The feeling of anger and the desire to do something, say something. We can stay present with that feeling and it will it will pass without acting on it. And you know, when we do that, when we stay present with the whole cycle of this craving until it diminishes, it just never has the same power over us again, whether that's lust or whether that's hatred of any kind. If we stay present with the feeling until it peaks and, and dissolves, it's like, wow, I don't have to give in to this. I don't have to follow this. I don't have to act that way. We become the masters of our own experience instead of the the victims. And it really works. So there was a woman not long ago, as I was talking about this somewhere, and she when it came time for questions, she said, I'm trying to stop eating sugar. And I just can't do it. I've I've never been able to really to do it. And then she said she has diabetes. She's not taking care of it. She's not using her insulin. She says whenever she has tried to really do the program, monitoring her blood sugar, eating properly, taking her insulin, she just she can't handle it. She crashes. And she just gives up everything, and she just eats what she wants to eat. She already lost her gallbladder to this. You know, Diabetes is like a silent killer. It just deteriorates and destroys your organs. And you don't feel it coming, right? So she called me about a week after this this talk, and she said, I am so excited because I'm using mindfulness to work with these cravings for sugar. And it's working. And I can withstand it and I don't have to eat it. A week later than that, she was back on her insulin. She's taking care of herself. And she said, mindfulness is really what is making it possible. So it's like, even if something's very, very deep, we can we can change it. It's It's such a wonderful practice. And it's exactly what the Buddha taught. Exactly. You know, this is what we can do. And if we look, okay, does not eating sugar lead us to Nibbana? Yeah, it helps. I mean in her case in particular, her body will last longer. she'll have more of a chance for practice. But also she's got much more confidence that she can change the subtle things in the mind. You know what if what if we're working with resentment or irritation? What if we have an aging parent and it's getting difficult to be patient with them? I see this a lot. So there's an irritation. And it comes up. Okay, what's the trigger? I don't want my parent to be aging. I don't want them to be helpless. I don't want them to be losing their memory. I don't want to be aging. I don't want to be helpless. I don't want to be losing my memory. I don't want to die. we got to really look. Where does it come from? What is it really bothering us? And then, how do we use the Buddha's method for combating or working with this irritation? We have to do the opposite. The irritation arises. You want to say something sharp. Impatient. And instead, we say, either to ourself or out loud to them, you're not doing anything wrong. You're not doing anything wrong. They're not breaking any precepts. That's a good measure for whether or not we or someone else is doing something wrong. Is there some aspect of the five precepts being broken here? No. No, I'm just irritated. That irritation arises within me. It's not their fault. You're not doing anything wrong. I just feel irritated. That's a great start. It changes our heart. It changes the way the way we feel. When we admit how we're really feeling, then we have a chance then we have a chance to do something different and to be free of that feeling. So we wear away the old kama by coming in contact with it again and again within the context of mindfulness and concentration. And then it loses its power over us. So our behaviors, as they become habits, They create our character, which develops our kama, which leads to rebirth. If those are good habits, so that's the opposite side. We replace the, the habits that are leading downward with habits that lead upward. What can I do instead of cultivating irritation? I can cultivate patience. I can cultivate patient endurance how long can i stay present with this situation of you know my parent falling apart or my child being disruptive or my boss being too demanding or whatever it is the traffic how long can i stay present with this situation and notice my feelings and be aware of them and not act How much kindness and patience and understanding can I bring into this situation? And then that becomes a habit. Coming back to our breathing. If emotions arise and coming back to our breathing, being present with the in-breath, the out-breath, that becomes a habit. Habits. Good habits, bad habits. But we want to make the good habits develop our character. So, I'd like to end these reflections and give you a chance to ask more questions.:
0: We'll, we'll pass the, the microphone to anyone who has a question and comment. It could be about tonight's topic of Nibana or habits or in general, uh, the nun's life. Um, Living in America, isn't none any, any of these kind of topics. I'm sure um, could be discussed.
1: Any mm. topic you want, any question you have, I'll do my best.
0: Okay. <laughs> uh, so, adika. Uh, so, thank you for the talk tonight. It's, it's a very wonderful talk. So, um, I'm very interested. In hearing your uh, uh, the topic of how you start getting interested in Buddhism, uh-huh. and also what is the most important reason that we decide to become the bhikkhunis? Kap and Kapo, that would be my question. Thank you.
1: The most important reason to become a bhikkhuni is faith in the Buddha. Complete faith in the Buddha. That's the system he set up. He ordained men, and he ordained women, and he gave them the same ordination. It's not like in the Catholic system where there are priests, and the priests have the ability to do certain rites and rituals and, and other things, and the nuns don't. The nuns in the Catholic system don't have real ordination, They're like lay practitioners. But the Buddha didn't do that. He gave women the same ordination he gave to men. Now, he also stipulated that the nuns would be junior to the monks, so they must pay respects and look to the monks for teachings. And there's a good reason for that, I believe, because... In India at that time, and probably now, and probably in many cultures, if a woman wasn't protected by a man, by her father or her husband or her brothers, she was in danger. And it's still true in lots of places. So the Buddha is looking at this kind of large number of women wanting to become bhikkhunis, and how do you protect them? They leave their families. They don't have their fathers or brothers or husbands protecting them anymore. How do you protect them? Well, we have to put them under the, the protection of the monks. It makes sense to me. I don't think the Buddha ever intended that that would be something to limit women from being ordained or for being full participants in the holy life. So that's why I became a bhikkhuni. I see that's the system the Buddha created. And it was also available. It was possible. I don't have to fight against anything to be a bhikkhuni in America. No one says, why would you be a bhikkhuni? They say, why would you not be a bhikkhuni? (laughs) Seems like it's so sensible. You know, the Buddha, we read about bhikkhunis. We like to have bhikkhunis because this makes the world a better place. And so that's why. That's the real reason.
0: Thank you. Uh, here, uh, maybe we use a microphone.
1: How many bikinis? Yes.
0: So far, that, as long as you know it, in the States.
1: You know, I, I think there must be about 20 or 30 now. Um, and more all the time, you know. You know how things grow, it's more exponential than linear. It's it's like there's there's a, a larger group of bhikkhunis and then more are getting ordained. And um, yeah, it's it's a it's an amazing thing, this training of the Buddha. You know, in the chanting we do in the morning, in the evening in the monastery, you might do the same chanting. When we talk about the qualities of the Buddha, you know, it's right in the Itipiso, Bhagawa, sama. There's a line in there that says the Buddha trains perfectly those who wish to be trained. And it's well, true.
0: Most, most of the bhikkhunis that you know are Westerners, right? Not Asian, right?
1: Well, in, in America, yes. I mean, there are Asian bhikkhunis in America, too. Um, and, and I know that there are bhikkhunis here, uh, some bhikkhunis. And there are also quite a lot of bhikkhunis in Sri Lanka. So my ordination is Sri Lankan. I was ordained in a Sri Lankan temple in Los Angeles by a wonderful bhikkhuni who was ordained with the first group of bhikkhunis, ordained Sri Lankan bhikkhunis in Bodh Gaya. She's my preceptor. She's a wonderful bhikkhuni. She was ordained when she as a bhikkhuni when she was 24 years old. And she's she's great. And she lives in America now. So there are some um, Asian bhikkhunis in America. And there are gradually more Western bhikkhunis. When I got ordained, I was ordained with three others as a bhikkhuni, and all three three of the four of us were Westerners. And I I grew up in Indiana, which is I grew up near Chicago. It's in the Midwest, and there's no Buddhism. There was no Buddhism there as I grew up at all. One of the other bhikkhunis I ordained with, she's also from Indiana. She also grew up on a farm. She was also born the same year as I. And now, so many years later, we both get ordained at the same time as bhikkhunis. What are the chances of that happening? (laughs) It was so amazing. (laughs) So um, I hope that answers your question. So okay. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Uh, it's about the habit. Uh, I just realized I have a habit of uh, having strong aversion to my bad habit.
0: Ah. Does that make sense? Strong aversion
1: to your bad habit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We can definitely hate our habits. This is a very, I'm glad you brought this up because I intended to say what happens when we find something that we're doing in the Sileka Sutta or like you have this aversion to your habit. First thing, no shame, no blame. But um, I like Ajahn Brahm, he talks about the AFL method acknowledgement, acknowledge, forgive, and learn. So we have a habit, and we know it's a habit that leads downwards. It's a habit that leads away from Nibbana. So the first thing is to just be kind. Be kind to ourselves. There are reasons why we do what we do. If we understood all our past kama, our past lives, it would all make perfect sense, and we'd have a lot more compassion for ourselves. Because this this came about through causes and conditions. Now we have the chance to put in new causes and new conditions that lead to Nibbana. So this hatred towards our habit, we can work with that in the same way we work with any other habit. We can acknowledge, oh, this is the habit that I have. Now what can I learn? What can I learn about from this habit that I can make it different, change how I react when I do this thing again? You know, maybe I think, oh, I should be beyond this. You know, we have to be with what we are. It's really, it's really challenging when you're a bhikkhu or a bhikkhuni and you think, oh, I'm, I've been practicing this long. I mean, it happens as lay people, too. I, I should be better than this. And we have to be where we are. It doesn't help anything to think that way. So it's, it's like developing this, this kindness, this generosity towards ourselves and others. Allowing us to actually be where we are. Regardless of what we're doing, we be present with that first, and then we can change it. Thank you. AFL. In America, it would be the American Football League. (laughs) I think maybe there's an Australian Football League, too. That's why... (laughs) Acknowledge, forgive, and learn. It's so simple and so beautiful. Acknowledge, forgive, and learn. We have a few more minutes. Any more questions? <laughs> yeah, I don't mind at all. Um, I don't think you can get too personal with me. It's okay. <laughs> ask whatever you want to ask. I am 59 years old. <laughs> I, I can only tell you that I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> it just happens. Um, one, one woman was asking me, you know, how old I was, and I told her, and she's like, Wow. I'm going to have to shave my head. <laughs> yeah, 59. Yeah, we age. Whatever I think I look like or I am like, it's not going to last. It's not going to last. Don't get too attached. <laughs> What else do you want to ask me that's personal? Let's go for it. (laughs) Okay, it doesn't have to be something personal. Whatever. (laughs) I I did. Um it was still pretty new and and Karuna Buddhist Vihara is um is a non-profit organization. It's a it's considered a church in America. That's the way they think of things there. And um and so as people donate to Karuna Buddhist Vihara, that's what supports my needs. Um it supports me and it supports the the little monastery. So we operate entirely on dana, and uh, it's not easy in America because things like rent—it's a rented house, is very expensive, you know. But that's what comes with being there, and uh, it's wonderful to see the people who come, and and some of them are people who don't know very much about Buddha, Buddhism but they're interested in learning and they mainly want to be happier. And, uh, you know, it's a really deep desire. It's a really, that that desire to be happier can lead us all the way to Nibbana. You know, it doesn't have to be something superficial at all. Uh, real happiness is, is, is the whole practice. The Buddha really emphasized being happy. This is And I found it in myself. When I'm happy, when I feel safe in an environment, living in a big monastery, sometimes you feel safe, sometimes you don't feel safe. There's a lot of things going on, right? But if you're in a situation where you feel safe and you're happy, practice goes much better. You can get much more concentrated. The Buddha really recommended create, situations find situations in which you can be happy and really let go so that's what we try to create at Karuna Buddhist Vihara it's the compassion monastery so women come there to practice and to stay with me for some period of time and they also men and women everyone's welcome to come for the classes of course and the practice and um, the general idea is to really bring compassion to our practice, really bring kindness and clarity. Those two things really are essential. And so it's it's really wonderful to see this unfold, this tiny little effort. Um, and and there are people who really want to see, uh, have bhikkhunis in the world. There are people who... Support our our organization that don't even live near us. Across the country, someone just sent a donation the other day. It Does, doesn't even, it can't even come, but really cares about what we're doing. So it's, it works. So I think it's about time. I'd like to, um, I don't know if you have, do you have a standard way of closing or just make up my own. <laughs>
0: well, what would you like to do?
1: Well, what I'd like to do is offer you the blessing that uh, we all received on the airplane, you know, the standard uh, the standard um, please remain seated with your seat belts fastened until we come to a complete stop. And the captain has turned off the fastened seatbelt sign, so please remain seated with your seatbelts fastened, your protection in place as you have the defilements come to a complete stop. And I hope you have a pleasant stay here, and I mean that, happiness in your life as you work As you live in a way that leads to nibbana. And if this is, if you're traveling on from here, may you have a pleasant journey until you reach your final destination, nibbana.
0: Sadhu, thank you very much for coming to teach tonight. On behalf of BIA, we'd like to present some small gifts at this time. People can continue to uh, converse and ask questions so forth. So at this time, we can pay respects together.
1: It's been so delightful to spend this evening with you. I really wish you well. I'm really pleased that you come here on a Tuesday night <laughs> in the rain. <laughs> um, these are um, very special books. We have Ajahn Buddha Dasa's book, Handbook for Mankind. So I really appreciate, appreciate that. And then this book is called Women Strengthening Buddhism. It's by... Dhammananda Bhikkhuni. So as Bikuni order comes back to life. So I recommend those. <laughs> so be well.
0: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.